0: If you're lucky enough to have success in the industry, you become pigeonholed as, you know, the comedy guy or the, you know, the, the biopic guy. Um, and as you know, everybody on this Zoom knows we can do anything. You know, we especially we all love movies. We study movies, and if you understand drama, if you understand acting, you understand, you know, cinematography and directing. You, you can really make make anything, or, or at least try.
1: Hello. And welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. Today's episode takes us behind the scenes of director Shaka King's new biographical drama, Judas and the Black Messiah. The film tells the true story of William O'Neill, a career thief who is conscripted by the FBI to infiltrate the Illinois Black Panther Party and surveil their charismatic leader, Chairman Fred Hampton. As Hampton's political influence grows, O'Neill is pushed to choose between his own freedom and bringing down a messiah. In addition to Judas and the Black Messiah, Mr. King's directorial credits include the feature film Newly Weeds" and episodes of the series Shrill, High Maintenance, and People of Earth. Mr. King spoke with DGA past president, Taylor Hackford, about filming Judas and the Black Messiah in front of a virtual audience. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation.
2: Good evening, I'm Taylor Hackford, and I have the pleasure tonight to introduce Shaka King, the director and writer and producer of Judas and the Black Messiah. Uh, a very complex, very strong film, which, by the way, I love. And that's why I'm here. I, I want to, uh, express my passion. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I hope that all of you out there have seen it. If you haven't, you better see it. Uh, because I think it, it, uh, it's crying out as a piece of art to uh to us to uh, look at a period of time in our history that uh you know we are all subject to the media and what the media says about us as a people and, a, and communities and in this particular time which is the time when i was in the peace corps and then came out of the peace corps and this is uh you know in the mid 60s 68 69 that area um, uh, you know the the black panthers were painted in a particular way and uh in this instance shaka has gone back and rewritten history put his filter on it and basically a magnifying glass and telling us what we didn't hear. um so uh let me start um uh, with asking you shaka because this is a passion project how this came about um uh, why you decided to Go this direction. I want to just say, you know, you know, I checked your credits, and you know, you written comedy. You made a a, pre, a feature before this, which was a dramedy. Uh, you know, so people would normally say, well, that's where he's, that's where he goes. Uh, what drew you to this?
0: Well, first of all, thank you
2: uh, for the kind of
0: words and that you. I'm glad you like the movie, and thank you for doing this. Um, the movie came to me from the Lucas Brothers. Uh, comedian comedy writing duo. And they, you know, asked me if I was interested in making a movie that they called The Departed Inside the World of Cohen intelpro about Fred Hampton and William O'Neill. And when they laid the pitch out there like that, it just completely made sense to me. I could see the movie instantly. And I recognized, you know, the cleverness of telling the story that way because, you know, I understood there was no way you were going to make a movie about Fred Hampton. Um, or even the Black Panther Party, I think that was just a straight biopic. Um, you know, not I mean, put his politics aside. It was just the name recognition um wasn't large enough for us to walk into, you know, a meeting with a bunch of studio execs and say, Hey, we want to make this movie about Fred Hampton. I would have said, Who who is that? You know, and so I I recognized that especially you know coming off the heels of Black panther um, and just you know I remember going to see that movie in the theaters and audience members showing up in berets and leather jackets and so there was a synergy there um, that was very obvious to me uh, and I knew that if we kind of couched it in genre we could we could get it made um, in terms of you know what um what sort of made me think I could tell this story, the truth of the matter is even though i'd been writing and directing comedy for several years my the movies I like to watch are crime dramas, specifically crime dramas in the seventies those are my that's like my comfort television you know um and so I study those films I love those films I always had a desire to you know make something akin to those. Um, but I recognize the impediments that existed. Just because, as you know, they typecast. You know, if you if you're lucky enough to have success in the industry, you become pigeonholed as you know the comedy guy or the you know the the biopic guy. Um, and as you know, everybody on this Zoom knows we can do anything. You know, we especially we all love movies. We study movies, and if you understand drama, if you understand acting, you understand. You know, cinematography and directing—you you can really make make anything, or at least try. Um, and so I, I felt confident that I could I could pull it off.
2: I love the I love the pitch because the the pitch is these it, it's it the departed and the whole concept of of the the person betraying the other. I mean, it's it you you know you don't need to go any further. You got that. And did you know about O'Neill? Did you know that not you at did? all? Not at See, all. I, I did, knew about Fred Hampton. I didn't know, I knew Hampton, but I didn't know that. It's an incredible uh, relationship that that is innately dramatic.
0: Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. The thing that was crazy was that once I started reading up about him, everything I read about him portrayed him as Fred Hampton's bodyguard uh, and Fred Hampton's driver. And so my understanding was that they had a lot closer relationship than they actually had. It wasn't until I met, Chairman Fred Hampton Jr., Fred Hampton's son, that I, find out that I found out that they had no relationship. They were not friends. Um, you know, he wasn't Fred's driver or bodyguard. And so we had to, I mean, we, at this point, my, my co-writer Will Burson and I had done probably five or six drafts. And we had to kind of go back to the drawing board and take a completely different approach. Um, because, as you said, it's, a, it's an inherently dramatic situation when you're talking about two people with a relationship relationship. It becomes significantly less dramatic when you're talking about two people who, you know, Fred Hampton Jr. saying, you can't even photograph them alone in the same room. Um, And so it it became kind of a a, a magic trick. Like, how do we make these two seem like a relationship is forming between the two of them without it being a movie about, you know, a guy essentially betraying his best friend?
2: Yeah. I think that, that that, also is a fascinating thing when you uh are, are, are doing something that's fictional you're doing something that you're creating you know you can create really any relationship you want the problem when you uh deal with reality is that this these are real people and you can take a little bit of dramatic license sometimes but you know like you said there's fred hampton jr there's you know living you can't go out there and say, "Oh, I'm to hell with it, I'm throwing out the window." Some people try that in films, and I, when they do, it always I really get upset because I'm going, yeah. "What do you, over- you, you, you? have you have you, you know it, I know you can make it dramatic, but the fact is you're being tied to that umbilical cord, which is reality. You better stay true to the facts now within that it's and you did I think you made it a very compelling story. a fascinating thing in this film you start. With O'Neill, and you start with a guy, you know, he's coming in, he's knocking over a bar, uh, he, he, you know, he impersonates an FBI guy, and you know, you don't start with Hampton, which I think is you were, as you were saying, who is Fred Hampton? We discover it. you know, you, you know, you got a great act. I mean, Lakeith uh, Stanfield, fantastic. I mean, he's wonderful. You know, one, one would call him the star, although you know, uh, Daniel. You know, is definitely the star also, and and as a supporting player, there's a an actor named Jesse uh, Plemons, right? Fantastic, mm-hmm. the guy who plays the FBI guy. So the performances—that's the other thing. You know, you 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 got a very visual picture, but you also know actors. You've acted yourself, haven't you?
0: One time, but I I don't even consider that It's me and my best friend and my cousin.
2: You got but, it. But <laughs> well, the fact is, you got great performances, which is so important in a drama. But the point is that you you go in, you discover this guy, you discover Judas first, and you see the situation he's in. And there's a fantastic thing that that uh, I think LaKeith did, as an actor, he's he, he's without power. He's he's there. He's he's certainly got guts. He goes to knock this place off. But at the moment that Jesse Plemons grabs him and gets him and presents him, you know, you can you impersonate a federal officer, you're going to jail for a long time. Or you can do this. And now we're led into we meet. So I think that I'm I'm complimenting you on this on the structure. Because we meet the Judas first and now he brings us to the Black Messiah. And we yeah. discover. Um let's talk about yeah, I, I'm I'm saying that you've got great roles here. Let's talk about casting. Because as you know, you know, we all have to cast the people that fit a role. Sometimes great actors just don't fit the role and they say, ah, oh, but I'm really great. Yeah, you are. But you're wrong for this role. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about those three actors, and then we'll talk about Dominique also. But let's talk about those three actors and how you well, found
0: the truth of the matter is you, you should ultimately lump Dominique in because the truth is I wrote it for the four of them. Oh, you did. I from the time I was writing the screenplay, I saw wow. Daniel, I saw LaKeith, I saw Jesse, and I saw Dominique. And I actually before we went to the studio, before we went out to pitch to the studios, we had. Daniel LaKeith and Dominique attached Jesse came really late I wanted him attached early but we just had a difficult time tracking him down and it wasn't until we were about two weeks out from shooting that I, I got a hold of him um, you're
2: kidding he came in that late yeah wow. he came
0: really late he came really late
2: uh well that's fantastic I mean yeah. in a way I was, I, could, I was ready to give the casting director all this credit you already yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh you know, we didn't also mention. You know, there's a member of this guild, and somebody I know. I'm I, I met him when he was in film school. Uh, you know, uh, you know Ryan Kugler, who is an incredible director, but he, you know, was one of the producers on this film. And uh, you know, I'm sure, you know, as it, he's got his plate full, but he must have seen this and decided, I want to, I want to sign on. Tell us about that.
0: So he and I have been friends since Sundance 2013. Uh Where myself, Ryan, and his wife and producing partner Zinzi were snowed in uh in, in Utah, and so we stayed in touch over the years, and uh, I think it was summer two thousand and seventeen uh He was over at my house hanging out with me and my parents in my in our backyard, and he asked me what I was working on, and I told him about this movie, and I saw his eyes light up um and you know, when he and Zinzi were leaving the house, they said, hey, if, you know, you ever want us to help with anything, you know, you just want, even introducing you to folks, like just let us know. And so as soon as I finished the script, I called him, asked him if he was interested in coming on board. He read it, he bought in, and then he ended up bringing on Charles King as the third producer who also financed half of the film.
2: Well, that that's huge. Because, uh, yeah. yeah, you know, I I everyone, not everyone, but I'm sure all the people watching who have worked with studios have worked with companies, corporations. Uh, this is not the kind of movie that you would ever think that Warner Brothers would make. I mean, I just, I just don't. Um, you know, you know, when Spike made Malcolm X, Spike had done a lot of films and he basically at this point kind of deserved to get this shot to make a big film and he did. It and he, he knocked it out of the park, you know, but he also had a proven movie star. Right. Like,
0: and and he also, from what I've heard, is he still had to raise outside money uh-huh. to finish that movie to get Michael Jordan to give him money. Yeah. Oprah Winfrey, I think, gave him some money to finish the picture, yeah. so he had a tough time too.
2: Yeah, well, you know, it's it, when somebody has a vision and it's not doesn't fit into quote commercial vein. It's all it's always a it is, but uh, uh, what what I think in terms of Ryan, uh, one I I know his his reputation he's got a huge amount of integrity but also his success has got to help but for him to bring along a guy who was going to put up half the dough that really helps because that also tells me that Warner brothers went hey you know we we this is a risk but we're not taking the whole risk
0: exactly 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 no ryan was the glue not just in terms of you know getting a movie like this made i mean the movie literally stands on the shoulders of the success of black panther you know, he he could have gotten anything made probably around after that film. But he also was the glue in terms of us getting the support of the family. Um, because, you know, I insisted early on, I was like, once we had a draft that we felt comfortable sharing, I said, we've got to share it with Chairman Fred Hampton Jr. just from a principal perspective. Um, and we did, and it was, those first our first conversation was a 12-hour meeting in Chicago at Fred Hampton's childhood home, 12 hours. And, you know, it was passionate. We laughed. We we got yelled at. You know, I mean, as he would say, you know, you guys started from a deficit because you wrote a screenplay without even talking to me. And I said, that's valid. But at the same time, I couldn't, you weren't gonna talk to me if I didn't have something to show you, you know. Right. Um, but what what helped smooth things over was the fact that. He and Ryan had bumped into each other in the Bay when Ryan was a grad student and they happened to remember one another. I mean, I think chairman was handing out flyers at an event and Ryan took one. And for whatever reason, they happened to remember one another. And and, and I'm talking a seconds long encounter all these years later. And I think there was just a rapport, as you mentioned, Ryan being such a person of such unbelievable integrity that's palpable, you feel it when you're in his presence. I think Chairman Fred Hampton Jr. felt that. And also the fact that Ryan's from the Bay, the Panthers started in the Bay. There was that Bay area connection as well. Um, and so, you know, he was, Ryan was the glue in a lot of ways.
2: I think, um, I think the, 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 was Ryan also, I mean, you had all these actors in, in, uh, in mind when you were writing the script. Four main characters, amazing. Did you know them uh how did you how did you connect with them
0: i i was friends with lakeith who i funny funnily enough i met through ryan in 2014 at the spirit awards he introduced us um and we'd always talked about working together dominique fishback and i uh she joined uta which is where i'm repped she joined uta i think while i was in the midst of writing the script and i got a random email saying hey do you want to meet with this actress?" i said funnily enough i'm writing something for her right now (laughs) uh and she lives in brooklyn so for about a year and a half before we started even prepping she and i were just having conversations and she was really played an integral role in developing that character um and then you know jesse was the was the one that was really difficult to track down um You know we we tried going through his reps and the reps kept telling us you know we get we have we've given them the script he's not responding i don't know what's happening you know and then obviously the the studio thought about pivoting the producers thought about pivoting just because there was an opportunity to cast a really famous you know look that's our white actor like they were like we can get anybody let's get jake (laughs) gyllenhaal let's get you know let's get chris pratt but i always wanted jesse and you know that would have also brought the budget up, I think, significantly. Getting you know some big yeah. movie star, and I just really was insisting upon Jesse. And when we didn't get those, you know, those actors that they were seeking, um, I ended up, you know, we were like I said, two weeks out from from shooting the movie, and um, I believe it was my production coordinator. Oh no, it was it was somebody on the on the producing side of things who would worked with Jesse uh on another picture and happened to have his phone number and he said don't tell him i did this but and he slipped it to me and i called jesse got one straight to voicemail and so i, I sent him a long text saying hey i've been trying to track you down i don't know if you've gotten the script and here's the project he called me immediately said i've never heard of this i'm really about, i'm really sorry you know i i would have never just ignored you for a year and let me read it i'll read it tonight and i'll get back to you tomorrow and he read it liked it and he he talked to his wife to make sure it was okay for him to you know step away for a little while and then um he he joined us
2: i think that's you know this is a great lesson just to all filmmakers you know you you you, we we work in a system where you send a piece of material to an agent or a manager and you trust that they're going to send it on but of course what they're thinking is, you know, is this a bona fide offer? You know, is there how much money is involved? And, and the words have come back many times. Well, we just couldn't get a hold of them, or it's not for him, or what? And you don't really know whether they don't know if they've ever it. seen it. Have they ever? You yeah. don't even know if they've read the thing. No, no, and that's why it's crucial. And this is what I think is so fantastic about your vision. You had this in mind. You had an actor in mind. They were. You know I'm sure the studio was saying we can give you better, we can give you big names. And this time you, you stayed with your vision. But you know, two weeks out <laughs> that's mm-hmm. tough. So yeah. uh they, when you hear stories like that and they come true. But of course it's a powerful thing to talk to an actor and say, you know what? I wrote this role with you in mind. I mean what actor can say no to that? Right. They'll at least read it. You know yeah. Yeah. No, that's fantastic. Um and and uh you know, the, the the process of Chicago, which is a very unique place. I mean, you are are you originally from New York? I know that's where you from, live. Yeah, yeah, I'm from Brooklyn, born and raised. You are. So, you know, we, we, and I'm from the West Coast, you know, you, you, but you've got, you know, the stink of Chicago in this movie. <laughs> in the bones, <laughs> it's there. It's important to have because Chicago is a unique place, and that was... You know Fred Hampton's stomping grounds. That's where he was, and I loved. I loved your use of of that city. Um, well,
0: I should tell you no I, I should let you know. We shot in Cleveland.
2: Well, you know but, what? You know we we did we did. I mean it was for the
0: tax credit. We 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 scouted West Side of Chicago. We wanted to shoot in the West Side of Chicago desperately. It broke my heart not to shoot on the West Side of Chicago because it has a very specific look, and the West Side of Chicago is in some ways trapped in a time warp, even though, you know, there's been a lot more of the development than it has in Cleveland. The great thing about Cleveland is it is truly trapped in a time warp. Yes. And I mean, the movie, most of the movies interiors, just because we didn't have, you know, we didn't have $60 million and $90 million to have those, you know, massive wide exteriors that really sell the time period. Uh, so you had to be really purposeful with that. But we found such great interiors that we it didn't diminish the scope of the movie and we could have only gotten those interiors in Cleveland
2: yeah I I gotta tell I mean Chicago is a very specific town but what I'm saying is and and, you know the Midwest and in the industrial Midwest is a very specific look it ain't New York and it ain't California uh so you know the fact that you have Cleveland I I you fooled me but I you know no I didn't see the Loop and I didn't see the lake and those kinds of things that you would in Chicago but I uh, you know the neighborhoods and the situations you shot I thought were believable and they were believable because like I said the industrial Midwest and and it's rot and, yes. it's, tough, yes. and it's toughness um yes. and it's soulfulness I, I I think was there and and I'm going to compliment you uh because I I saw that crit on the film which was what thank you thank um you. let's let's talk about um you know we've talked about script and we've talked about the actors and we'll talk more about them but um you know you collaborated with a fantastic cinematographer um you know sean bobbitt is is i you know i i love i love his work he is into you know he he really goes for dark high contrast He loves shadows. I think the thing is, it was interesting to me about this film is that you've got, you know, it's, it's a portrait in black. And I know because I've, I've made films with a lot of black actors. Right. Mm -hmm. And black isn't black, isn't black. Black goes from blue, black, which is like, is into a cream. Daniel. Yeah, exactly. And, and uh, a cinematographer can, it can drive them crazy because they're trying to, to, to get it. And you got to say, Hey, this is this is what black people are. There's they're this incredible, you know, process of shades. You got to do it. You got to capture it. And I love this picture because you got these dark shadows and people coming out of those dark shadows. I mean, uh, it, it, talk, talk to me about your process with Sean and what you wanted. And-
0: it's so funny you say that because you know our makeup artist Sean Richards. she's she, I mean, she made Holly Berry a an old German woman in a movie, right? So she's really skilled at prosthetics and she really has a desire to, you know, make a if she's doing a movie about a historical figure, make a person look like the person they're playing. And Daniel, as you know, is a very dark-skinned man. And Fred Hampton was dark-skinned, but he wasn't nearly as dark as Daniel. Um, and she came to me and she said, I, I want to lighten Daniel's skin. <laughs> and I she was really pushy about it too. And I said, You're out of your mind. First of all, I'm not taking six hours in the morning to to put this man in the makeup chair every day. Second of all, his skin is iridescent. It's the it's one of the it's he has a lot of gifts as an actor. He's one of the best actors in the world. But he the way that his skin reflects light, and Sean and I, Sean Bobbitt and I, talked about this just like because he he shot Daniel, you know, in Widows, and we just love how his skin takes to light, and it. You know, to so we wanted to really, like you said, the beauty of those different shades of brown, you know, against these pastel backdrops that we found in in, in, in Cleveland. You know, a, a color that we would refer to as Panther Green, this kind of mint green that would show up at these different locations. You know, and, and Sam Lisenko, our production designer, he just did a masterful job of, you know, finding these locations that kind of acted as a canvas And against the canvas, you had these brown tones of skin and our costume designer just adding color, earth tones, you know, and and just dots of color to create this almost kaleidoscopic, you know, just image. And it all really starts to kind of get back to your original question with, I have a friend named Akeem McKenzie who's a production designer. And uh, he was attached to this film, avoid to leave and go do Space Jam. Before he left, he gave me about 300 photos um, of the West Side of Chicago from 1967 to 73. And the Kodachrome look in those photos was just it. We had the look of the movie. And when I met with Sean and I presented him, he was like, well, this is what we're going for. Like we have what we need. Um, and so it was really just replicating that that tonality.
2: Yeah, I I, <laughs> I it reminded me, you know, I started shooting, uh... You know, Super Eight, way you know, way back when, with Kodachrome, you know, and mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. at the time, you go, but it's got that really strong, cat, you know, contrasty and saturated quotient. You know, Eastman mm-hmm. came in that was more pastel-y you know, all mm-hmm. that. But mm-hmm. I love Kodachrome because it's just a hard edge to it, and it mm-hmm. and it fit this film beautifully. I'm mean, you know, whatever. What I'm, did he shoot digital on this?
0: yeah he shopped at alexa
2: anybody made it look he he, you know it's it's what a master what a cinematographer does you know they play with light and they and they make it work but uh uh, i i love the look i think it fit the story
1: you know that's
2: the other thing sometimes you see a cinematographer who has a vision but doesn't it doesn't fit the story you know Mm -hmm. oh Mm -hmm. those are pretty pictures but you know yeah but we're telling a different story here you need that mating of of style with yeah. story and yeah. i think that uh that your film does that beautifully does Thank it beautifully you. um you know one thing that i think let's let's talk about the relationships here and what you were going for dominique is such a strong actress and such a real actress i mean she just has this she just reeks of integrity when she comes on and with she and daniel there's a there's this it's looks there's you know there's dialogue not a lot of dialogue from him. He has huge amounts of via dialogue as a political person would. He's speaking to the crowds, but mm-hmm. with her, he's just looking at her. She does mm-hmm. more talking. Am I right? Than than he does. Yes. Yes. And it's, it's, but it, there's incredible chemistry there, you know? Mm-hmm. And of course mm-hmm. the great, uh, the great compliment, you know, she says, you're a poet, you know, it doesn't get any better than that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. but, uh, is that true to the real relationship that the you know that they had?
0: No. It's funny because uh Akua Najeri, formerly known as Deborah Johnson, uh so Chairman Fred Hampton Jr. was on set every day. Akua would visit from time to time uh, and weigh in with, you know, she had very strong opinions. And one of the things she was really passionate about, uh, and you know, we 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 tried to accommodate their needs as much as possible, but there were certain things we couldn't accommodate. And one was this. She said, look. Chairman Fred Hampton Jr. was the leader of our organization. This was a very disciplined organization. I would never have spoken to him this way. I would have never like sassed him and, and spoken back to him that way because, you know, she calls her son comrade. He calls his mother Mother Comrade, you know, and she called Chairman Fred Hampton chairman. That's how she referred to him. Um, and so what I expressed to her was: look, I understand that, but we're operating from a deficit in the sense that this is not a, when you look at the history of women in the Panthers, even though it's well-documented that there was, you know, a lot of misogyny, you know, in the national organization, interestingly enough, in Illinois, that was, that was not the case. You know, if you look at the history, a lot of the, there were times, there there were times where the Illinois chapter was mostly women and there were women in positions of leadership. And so the fact that we didn't have a strong, Female presence in the film bothered me a lot. And so it wasn't, I didn't think it was right for one of the few strong women that we have in the movie for us to make her subservient to this man. I was like, she has to be his peer. And that's what he has to see in her that attracts him to her. Everyone else has to treat him like a superhuman being except her. She has to treat him like just, you're a man and I'm a woman. And, you know, I fought for that. And, and, you know, we we got we got to do it. Did and she? I think
2: did it, she, did she? I know you. Listen. She eventually did. Me. She
0: eventually yeah. accepted it. She eventually did. But it, it it was. I mean, even in post, she she fought us on it.
2: Well, you know, let's talk about this because uh, as a filmmaker, you know, you're you've got a vision. The crew and the cast are looking to you, but to have you know, I know I made a I've made uh, uh, biographies before, and to have the family there. And have the family with a strong point of view can be incredibly intimidating, not an and inhibiting and destructive. <laughs> Pardon me. So yeah. in this instance, how did you handle that? I mean, you know, it's great that you involved him early in the script, so you he you already knew. Fred Hampton knew that you were going to you. Uh, you made changes as per his comments. That's a big step. But did was there times when things stopped? It was
0: a it was a challenge for us throughout the shoot Uh, post, not so much. But, you know, he he read a bunch of drafts before signing on. Um, And, you know, it it took a year, about a year and change of us building a relationship before he agreed to come on set. In fact, he turned us down during our right before we started shooting. And Ryan, we shot the first week and Ryan flew back to Chicago without telling me and brought the dailies so he could see the dailies. And he was loving everything, and then one scene came on, and he was so upset with something we'd done that he said it, it, it was perfect. He said, "Okay, if you guys are doing this, I got to be there to make sure shit like this doesn't happen, so I'll come on board." And he flew to you know he flew to Cleveland, and and he was there for the duration. And every day, it was it you know the changes that he'd want to make would range from things that you know were seemingly innocuous to Changes he wanted to make that were like tectonic shifts to the production, and I would try to. We had a we had a you know we had a protocol. I was busy working with the crew and the actors. We had three assistants uh, who would be by Video Village, talking to him, and the producers as well. And either the assistants or the producers would basically act as go betweens between the two of us and say, "Well, Jim and Fred would like you to." take this in consideration and and, you know this and i'd say okay let me think let me see if i can kind of you know pull off a sideways move here and it was good training for just like dealing with the studio once the movie was finished in terms of how do you accommodate your collaborators desires and needs and still satisfy your own um and in a lot of ways it was no different than working with the studio with the producers when we had a disagreement, the difference being, they have an understanding of how movies work and he was learning how movies work on the fly. And so there's some, there were things he'd sometimes ask us to, to change that he wouldn't understand that, well, we already shot that this way and we can't go back and alter that, you know? Um, but there were other things, there were things that we shot that we had to change in post, you know, and, and were expensive uh but he was adamant that that, that that you know we go this route and ultimately in those instances i'm glad we did because he was right
2: yeah listen uh in all films, the last rewrite takes place in the editing room. Mm-hmm. you know you you work on the script you go out and you shoot it and you do all the things that are there and then in, you know you get in and you start composing the the actual finished product and you feel that oh you know as much as i did this and it was my personal vision these things didn't work or did work, and we've got to make adjustments. And that finesse, I think that most people never know, that audiences never know the finesse that you can do in the editing room to make things work. That And at the same time, you don't want them to be jarred. Oh, gee, there's something happening. No, it's got to be smooth. And right. You've got to be able to do it, but you can make real changes. Uh, and that's one of the, great, the joys of filmmaking. You know, Every, every part of the process, every step, is nuanced and and has huge hurdles but you can always kind of deal with it and make mm-hmm. you know make those adjustments that make the film better mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know it is um i want let, to let's talk you know one of the things about this film that i think was a choice definitely Um, uh, you know because i you know i as i mentioned i graduated from college and 67 i went in the peace corps in 67 i mean 68 69 in south america so this period of time was the flowering of of black power you know i mean it was a very intense time and there was a style of speech that was very specific and you did it here and and i you know the fact is it's 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 one of those things where you start watching the movie if you're not familiar and i'm sure that there's a there's a lot of people whether they're black or white they go what you know, and at the same time, it's one of those things where you, if you work at it, if you're in it, then pretty soon it becomes clear. But you didn't uh, clean it, smooth it, make everything you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, kind of in a middle ground. I think that their 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 dialogue was unbelievably authentic, and that was a choice, right? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't even a thought.
0: I started out as a, as a screenwriter, you know, the first thing I started out, I got into filmmaking from writing short stories. And, um, you know, I've always felt very comfortable writing dialogue. I've always felt good, like I was good at it, good at hiding exposition at it and good at capturing how people really talk. And, you know, even I'm 40 years old, but I've been a fan of old you know, movies and music specifically music um from that era of my whole life and consumed it since I was a teenager. Uh and so I it it it, it wasn't something I it wasn't like I had to think. I just I, I knew the era I was writing and I read so many books when I was a kid and you know that were written by like, you know, Richard Wright and James Baldwin and, and you know Ralph Ellison and um you know Iceberg Slim and and, and so I I I just understand that that speech and i have a second hand and it's just i just know it you know and so i felt very comfortable writing that stuff
2: How is it you know you, you've got daniel who's basically uh, an englishman you know i mean mm-hmm. his family's mm-hmm. from africa but he's an englishman mm-hmm. and he's coming into it's not like he's doing that straight mid-atlantic accent or trying to i mean he's doing that we're talking about this very specific dialogue how yeah. was that for him i mean was he i you know obviously it was brilliant because he did a brilliant job but it couldn't have been easy
0: so about a year before we started rolling he and i got together for about four to five days and we just talked about the dialect and played around with different things and talked about different influences i i shared with him and i mean the influences range from bernie mack who's a comedian from chicago to Robin Harris, who was another co- comedian from Chicago, to Eddie Murphy, and there's a voice that Eddie Murphy used to do, uh, you know, that we kind of borrowed from. Obviously, Chairman Fred Hampton Jr., who talks, who sounds like, almost like exactly like his father, and so we had this sort of amalgam of of and and obviously you know obviously Chairman Fred Hampton himself. So we had this you know some some references there, um, but ultimately. It really came down to Daniel doing the work. You know, one thing, it's funny to be talking to you because one thing we discussed was, well, let's look at Jamie Foxx's performance in Ray, right? Where he sounds and looks exactly like this man. I mean, you close your eyes and you you think you're, you're listening to Ray Charles speak and sing, right? But if Daniel tried to do that with Fred Hampton, the dialect, especially the way that Fred Hampton spoke, he was an incredibly fast speaker. Uh, he had that kind of Louisiana drawl because his folks were from Louisiana combined with the Midwestern thing. And then I believe I'm convinced that he had a deviated septum. Um, and so there's a sort of O sound to his tonality. And combine all those things, you're looking at potentially having to subtitle, some of this stuff, and we wanted to avoid that. And so it was like, how do we instead of trying to go Jamie Foxx and Ray. Let's look at Denzel and Malcolm X, where it's an interpretation. It's not exactly like Malcolm X, but there's something to it where you hear it and you say, that sounds like Malcolm X, even though it doesn't sound exactly like Malcolm X. And so we decided, you know, during that those four days that we were going to go in that direction. And then it came down to, you know, Daniel and uh, his dialect coach, Audrey LeCrone, who was incredible, really just working that material. Daniel took opera lessons because he knew that you know, he was going to have to do some of these really big speeches, and he went to blow. He want to blow out his voice, so he wanted to learn how to, you know, essentially sing the words from his diaphragm. From his um, diaphragm, that's amazing. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it just, you know, it's 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 much of the work was uh, all of the work was done by him.
2: Uh, let's let's talk about that. And, and there's in in the latter part of the film, you know, he comes and he has this huge speech, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. an amazing performance and. You know, I am a revolutionary. That the whole process, but th- that—that's a—that's a riff that you know they use in the, in the promotion and so forth. Yeah. The words of that speech, which are truly radical. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. That is, is that. Are those the actual words of Fred Hampton in that speech? Yeah. Yeah. Because you get a sense. This is the thing I wanted to, to talk about here too. You know, you you know, when you have that speech, you realize that Fred Hampton is out there. Preaching revolution, mm-hmm. and he's and he's out there uh, some pretty strong radical points of view. You know, mm-hmm. uh, you know. I know he quotes quotes Mao in the piece, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. but the fact is that people forget at that time. And I also think I'm going to tie this into uh, the fear that happened, because mm-hmm. a, a major character, although you know, and and he appears Martin Sheen appears as J. Mm-hmm. J Edgar Hoover. People, you know, the ghost of J Edgar Hoover hangs on over all of our heads, because yeah. this is a man who got into power, knew how to blackmail the presidents, was able to stay there forever he was cle- mm-hmm. he was from the south, he was clearly a racist, mm-hmm. he was gay, but mm-hmm. hid that I mean mm-hmm. all of these things th- th- this complicated, really difficult man, but clearly he was racist, and mm-hmm. clearly he saw in that speech that this was a revolutionary that he had to get rid of i mean mm-hmm. you, you use that and 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 of mm-hmm. course the the sense is, and I think it's been proven since that the FBI just got, you know, we got to get rid of this. guy, And they did. And you made it, you've made it very clear. But I think that, that you also, and I think this is one of the things I want to talk to people about in this movie is a fantastic uh, sense of human beings in this piece. Let's take the two people who were mostly responsible for the destruction of this heroic figure. And that is, you know, O'Neill played by Lakeith, And the uh, FBI agent, played by Jesse Plemons, Mm -hmm. and it would be really easy just to say they were snide, you know, uh, but but they're but they're both they're both painted in their own way as being powerless. Now Jesse, as an FBI agent, is definitely uh, you know he's playing he's you know he's 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 playing and punking out uh, you know O'Neill. but at the same time that what he does, and I think this is a brilliant thing, about a film that takes place, you know, 40 years ago, um, and at the same time has total relevance today. There's that sequence in there where you meet this FBI agent who tells you he went to Mississippi, and he was dealing with some really bad cats, and they were white, and there was the Ku Klux Klan, and he brought them, he put them in jail, he brought them to justice. You think, God, this guy's okay. he's, you know. And at the same time, then he turns it. And what he's saying is, this guy Hampton and the Panthers are bad people. They're the same thing as the Klan, and he's and and you hear it. And what I immediately drew conclusions to was today, you know, these Black Lives Matter people are out rioting in the streets, and these white supremacists over here, you know, they're both bad. You know, or there's you know as the as our former president, bad
0: people on both sides. There's, yeah. There's,
2: oh, no, he said. They're good people on both That's sides. That's right. Good
0: people on both sides. Bro. Yeah. Even the, even worse.
2: Yeah. But but here we are looking at um, something that happened, quote, historically, and you get the fear, uh, and you can hear uh, Jagger who Hoover justifying in his own mind, "I got to get rid of this guy because there could be a revolution here." These these, uh, I mean, he had his own feelings about Martin Luther King, and Martin Luther King was powerful, and had well, I Martin, think.
0: I think the thing that Jagger Hoover probably fared most was the fact that the Panthers were feeding kids, and that that was successful because I think he recognized if they're they're gonna they they're gonna get support of people, and when they get the support of the people, the people are gonna start questioning. Well, hey, how come the government's not feeding my kids, and how come they're taking money out of my check and they're not really doing it for me? Right. And so I think that's what ultimately made the Panthers the greatest threat was that they they were essentially brilliantly. Looking to replace the government,
2: <laughs> yeah. because the government wasn't
0: doing what they said they were going to, you know, what they were supposed to be doing.
2: I was going to. I told you earlier. You know, I was a reporter in for public television. And I interviewed Huey, Huey Newton, you know, and a, just him and me on the whole show. Fascinating because he was, you know, he and Bobby Seale, you know, created that party, mm-hmm. and they're very strong, very smart guys. Mm-hmm. Um, but as as the government thought, very dangerous people you know, mm-hmm. for that same reason. Mm-hmm. And I think that there that what you've done with this document of a historic situation is at the same time for those people who really want to just, it's not so hard to look at our situation today and realize that there's real relevance here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. And it wasn't so much something I set out to do intentionally. I did notice overlap, like there's certain scenes I remember when we were writing the scene where um, the Panthers go and visit the Young Patriots and it's revealed that that their symbol is the Confederate flag. I said, this is something that's interesting to just put forth today, you know, because so much has been made of that flag. And you hear poor white Southern, you know, not even poor white Southerners, just like white Southerners saying, well, I'm not racist. That just represents, you know, my culture. And so. The fact that those same, that same ideology existed then. And those individuals in the Young Patriots, they, it's funny. I, I did an interview earlier today where um, the reporter described them as white supremacists. And I said, they weren't white supremacists. And he said, well, they, 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 they come off that way in the meeting. I said, no, they don't.
2: No, they don't. <laughs> I said, no, they don't. Not at all. No. But the iconography is so strong. You well, the, I think that, that the iconography is, and, and that's the thing, you know, for Black people, that flag, you know, represents... Means a the, very different, thing. But, a very but different guess, thing. but guess what? Fred Hampton walked into that meeting, and mm-hmm. there it is on the wall, and he. And I think that was one of the strongest scenes. Here's a guy who should have said, you know, you know, but he didn't. He That's his power. That's, that was his that's, power. His, that's and one of his gifts. Yeah, finding points of interest. And he succeeded. See, that's the thing. He succeeded in that Rainbow Coalition. It's a fascinating, fascinating film. Um, You know, you made a a feature before this, Mm -hmm. uh, a little feature. What was Mm -hmm. the budget? (laughs) (laughs) $300,000. You know, so you graduated, and this is a much larger canvas. Mm -hmm. Uh, Tell me about what this whole experience, both experiences, because the first Mm -hmm. film, believe me, Everybody that's watching this film has made a first film, and mm-hmm. and and whatever it was, beg, borrow, or steal, we got it on the screen, and it's a big deal. Um, and now you've done this. What what are those two processes aiming towards? What now? This that you've done it, and I know you're still in the middle, and I hope, you know, really sincerely hope that it's recognized. You know, by the way, you know, you've done it; it's on the screen, and I think the respect is going to come from the people who watch it. Awards are awards, and we all know that that's a nice thing, uh, mm-hmm. but it's also, you know, because mm-hmm. there's mm-hmm. also great films that never get right. any, of right. uh, we, we all know those, but right now, what is this process taking you to and where is it going to lead you to? You know, I, I just want to make whatever I want to make
0: cinematically. That's, that's it. it. You know, I, I, I love comedy. I Still love comedy. I, I love crime movies. I I have interest. There's something I want to do that I'm kind of an idea that I've been tinkering with the last few weeks before you know this this press one started. That's the the best way I can describe it is tonally it's kind of like my favorite kind of cinema right now, which is Korean cinema, yeah. which is tone less. There's the 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 there's the the tone is whatever the director wants to do in the moment, yeah. and I love. How brave that filmmaking is, and I want to try that. <laughs> yeah. You know,
2: well, yeah. I I, t- I totally agree with you. There, there, they, there's a boldness, there's a fearlessness to try things. Yeah. You would, yeah. if you, if you said, this is what it's going to be. You go, what? Exactly. And then you watch it, and you go, that works. Yeah. Uh, or I'm touched, or it's really powerful, uh, and so all, I,
0: or all in the same movie.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> It's, you know. it's bold. It's bold. Uh, well, listen, I really appreciate the time. I hope that we have a big audience watching from the DGA. It's, this film really deserves to be seen. Please watch it. And uh, you make your own opinions. But, you know, make sure before you vote, you've seen at least this film too. I really, I'm, I, I'm urging my, my brethren out there. You know, I love this guild. And, uh, and I think that, you know, this is a different audience. I've tried to make this about a, a filmmaker and we're, and I think he's, you know, you've been incredibly articulate and, and your journey and which many of us have taken uh, is very specific. And uh, I just congratulate you for getting this on the screen. I know it wasn't easy. Thank you, Taylor. I appreciate it a lot. Thanks for doing this. I really, just really appreciate it. Yeah. Cheers.
1: Thanks for listening to another DGA Q and A. If you'd like to hear more, The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Stay tuned in the coming weeks as we bring you discussions of films from Roda Blank, Tara Mealy, and Gerard Bush and Christopher Wrenz. And be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.